welcome to Finding the Glitter in the Golds, a Middle Earth chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And we are, as always, discussing the works of John Ronald Rayul Tolkien, who was writing stories set in Middle Earth from 1937, when he was 45, up until his death in 1973, when he still had not made an internally consistent narrative. So any mistakes that we make, um, any details that we get wrong are just because we are making like J.R. Tolkien and making shit up. So this uh, particular episode is going to go into Hobbit culture, Um, specifically uh, Hobbit inheritance laws and uh, legal structures in Lord of the Rings. Uh, Zoe's done a lot of research on this, and I'm very excited to hear about it. It took me on a lot of tangents that are just kind of like legal paraphernalia in the the Middle Earth universe, so it'll be fun. (laughs) Hannah, a little bit ago, sent me a Tumblr post that kind of sparked this saga of, of research. And it is from Liam Dreden with Arendelle was a Mariner, Avenger Who, Brawled Together Now, Pulmonary Poultry. Those are the four, five. And it goes as such. Ironic that Bilbo is so annoyed with the Sackville Bagginses for stealing from him and trying to evict him from his house. When his whole adventure involves stealing from someone and evicting them from their house. To which Avenger Who replies, to be fair, he was essentially helping someone else get rid of their own Sackville Bagginses. We're all together now, says, this is an absolutely world-rocking take on narrative parallels in The Hobbit. Like, why, yes, those were equally petty property disputes. And your point? Pulmonary poultry. Thorn, the dragon smog is terrible beast who has invaded our home and taken the heirlooms of our people as his loot. Bilbo, remembering the last time Lobelia Sackville Baggins was in the house. I know the type. <laughs> so it's a common ground there I know a lot of common ground and I'm like you know I didn't even realize that connection until it was pointed out to me but that is <laughs> indeed exactly what happened Bill was motivated by a desire to adventure and a desire to help someone else be very petty about property disputes maybe he thought he was like kind of getting revenge on Lobelia in a really weird esoteric way I don't know Sure, very roundabout. I'll get rid of your own Lobelia, who's a big dragon. <laughs> right? If I can get rid of a dragon, I can get rid of the Sacknobagons. <laughs> so, my research first took me to a letter that Tolkien wrote, number 214, that was a discussion of laws and customs surrounding the giving of gifts on birthdays and a look at inheritance laws in Hobbit families. So we'll start with what Tolkien said and then go down with what other people have said. The letter said, and it was kind of a long letter, so I just took a few paragraphs of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The receiving of gifts was an ancient ritual connected with kinship, originally a means of recognizing a Beardine's membership in a family, anciently a short time after birth when the children's name was announced. And so a a Beardine is like a a member of the family. They're called a Beardine? Yeah, like, like before you've been given a name and you're just like a little infant bawling and screaming, you're like a Beardine. So they would name them later on. Okay. Uh, parents gave no presents to children, but the head of the family was supposed to give something, even if only a token. The giving of gifts was a personal matter not limited to kinship and a form of thanksgiving for services, benefits, and friendship. When hobbits reached age three, they gave presents to their parents, supposedly something produced by the child. This may have, been, uh, this may have begun the custom of giving on birthdays and why it was correct that things uh, given be presents owned or produced by the giver. In the Shire at the time of the party, 
expectation of receiving was limited to near kin and those living within 12 miles. A 12-mile cousin was a stickler for the law in Hobbiton expression. God. That was like a legal term was 12-mile cousin. Good job, Hobbits. The fact that Hobbits have a legal term for somebody who's kind of like a expect something because they live close to you, that's pretty good. Right? Uh, received gifts had to be delivered in person properly before the birthday or by nuncheon on the day itself at the latest and received in private precisely to avoid embarrassments that occur in our wedding exhibitions, said Tolkien. As an aside, he stated that only flowers were gifted at Hobbit weddings. Oh, that's pretty. And then that letter kind of moved on to how inheritance was passed down in the Hobbit families. He wrote, Hobbits were universally monogamous and patrilinear, so family names descended in the male line. So creative. I know, right? And normally the titular family head was the eldest male. In the large, powerful families, such as the Tooks, the head of what we would call a clan was the eldest male of the most direct line of descent. But family government was not a monarchy, it was a diarchy in which master and mistress held equal, if separate, status. Separate but equal. Right? Oh my god. Come on, Tolkien. It's a little bit, a little bit of issue, but you know. If the master died first, his titular headship of the clan was taken by his wife and did not descend to the son while she lived. Under the right circumstances, a long-lived woman of forceful character could be the head of the family until she had full-grown grandchildren. Laura Baggins was head of the Baggins of Hobbiton until age 102, holding the title for 16 years before her son, Bungo, succeeded her. Bilbo only became the Baggins' head when his mother, Belladonna, who was of Took, died in um, second age 1334. So then I thought this was funny. So I found the, you know, the letter. And then there was also a, a kind of a side at the end of all this that the person who had put the letters together had mentioned. Due to strange events, the Baggins' headship was in doubt. Otho Sackville Baggins was heir to the title, but after Bilbo returned alive, after being presumed dead, no one would presume him dead ever again. Oh my God. So they would just assume that he was always alive no matter what. <laughs> Bilbo's always watching us. I know, right? It's kind of big brotherly. Uh, when Master Samwise reported that Bilbo and Frodo went over the sea, it was still impossible to presume death. So newly elected Mayor Samwise established a rule of succession and inheritance in such situations. Presumably, Ponto II then became the head of the Baggins. Okay. So they had to make up a whole new descent because no one would believe Bilbo could ever die. <laughs> yeah, basically. Amazing. <laughs> oh. So then when I, then I found this letter, blah, blah, blah. Turns out an actual lawyer got a five-foot copy like of the contract from The Hobbit, which isn't the real contract in the book, but in the movie, they had that like really long, extensive contract. And so now you can buy a copy of it. So a lawyer bought a copy of it and did a complete analysis of like the veracity of this contract. And it was probably like a, like a six-page article, which was oh my God. absolutely hilarious to read the entirety of. But at one point, he says, uh, first, it seems fairly clear to me that Tolkien wrote the Shire as a close analog to pastoral England with its similar legal and political structures. For example, the Shire has a mayor and sheriffs, and there is a system of inheritance similar to the common law. The common law fundamentals of contract law have not changed significantly since the time that the Shire is meant to evoke. So it makes sense that the contract would be broadly similar to a modern contract 
and likewise that we could apply modern contract law to it. This is the contract that Bilbo signs to join the party of dwarves where it's like yes. in the event of death or it's like you get a 14th share, that whole thing. Yeah, that entire thing. That's like five pages long. Yeah. Or one big scroll. Or one really, really big scroll. Um, so I looked up English common law. Turns out most of it has been pretty much the same since the mid-1200s. Holy I mean, shit. obviously, like, over time, there's been adjustments and things. In total, most of the law is just about the same. Damn. That's a long-lived... Uh, I don't know how I, I know, feel right? about that. I mean, obviously, like, there's some things that have changed over time, and then they kind of just add, like, an addendum or they change it. But, yeah. Totally. It goes back to the mid-1200s. Um, so then I was like, okay, so what is inheritance in common law if we can then you know deduce that this would be how inheritance was passed on in the shire so i did a really quick search of that and got a really wonderful uh summary nice. from a legal website i should have put the name down whoops so it says the rules of common law inheritance or primogeniture were largely settled by the end of the 13th century Precedence went initially to a dead person's issue descendants, in preference to collaterals such as siblings or aunts. Within the same generation of descendants, men were favored over a woman, but only the eldest male inherited. If there was no male issue, then any daughters inherited together as co-heiresses. However, a deceased descendant who had themselves had issue was represented by that issue. So their kid yeah. becomes stands in for them. Yeah. Thus, the son of A's deceased eldest son had priority over A's living younger sons. Jesus. And indeed, the, da the daughter of a dead eldest son had priority over a surviving eldest son. So that's when a woman could take priority, is if she was the daughter of the eldest son. Okay. And this is in English common law, but also probably transfers into Hobbit law. Yes, precisely. And that means that you could, so you can have two heirs. Uh, the son of a dead elder daughter represented or stood in place of that daughter and thus inherited jointly with any surviving younger daughters. So their example was John Hadley of London had two heirs at his death, his daughter Catherine and his grandson John. I see. So basically that method of inheritance would apply within, like if you didn't have any um, sons or daughters, then they would search for any living relatives such as a father's sister or a mother's sister or a grandparent, you know, and then that same mm -hmm. rule would apply. Brothers okay. before sisters, uncles before aunts, etc. Cool, cool, um, and great. And there are a bunch of, like, really random things that you could do, which was interesting because you could change how you gifted property or inheritance, like, in a will if you want, didn't want people to get it, but it had to be done in certain ways, and they all have really, really weird names. Mm -hmm. um, so there was, like, a descent by entail, which is when gifts of property designed to modify common law rules eliminated collateral heirs um, and grants made to such a person were called entails, which to me is like a really weird name for some kind of inheritance. But So that means you, in this entails version, you decide who gets your stuff and it doesn't matter who the line of succession is. You would gift it to a person and then the same style of inheritance would apply to that person, daughters, sons, daughters, et cetera. But you could decide who it was that got it oh. if you didn't want your, your living relatives to have access to your inheritance. Okay. Kind of like how Bilbo chose that Frodo 
would inherit all of his things, even though he technically wasn't fully related. He was like adopted or something? He was ado- like, he took him in. There was no official adoption. Okay. He just kind of took him under his wing and then put him into inheritance, which is why the Sackville Bengases were pissed. Cause they were like, he's not even your, he's not even related to you. And he's like, I don't care. Y'all suck. <laughs> the other interesting change you could make was called a use, um, where lands were granted to a person or persons. Uh, they were called the fiofies. The fiofies? Yeah, the fiofies. F-E-O-F-F-E-E-S. It's adorable. I know, right? Weird words. But they were lands that they could then, uh, they were instructed to hold them for the benefit of another party, like such as like paying debts or administering lands on behalf of underage descendants, things like that. Um, And it was interesting because that law was put into place to take advantage of the feudal system uh, or and to keep feudal lords from getting possessions because the person could gift land to his fellow tenants and then the feudal lord couldn't get it. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they like changed common law in terms of feudal lords and tenants and that the tenants actually had power, like a power they could use if they knew about it. That wouldn't necessarily you know, applied to the Shire per se, but I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, and you get to say Theophies. So, the Shire had the English common law system more than likely. Cool. I mean, yes, sort of cool. Pretty sort of cool. sexist, but yeah. I mean, as we have discussed, it's a very sexist series in general. Yes, but. this is true. You said that Sam became the mayor of yes, he Hobbiton. Did. Um, and there was a sheriff that was also a, a job mm-hmm. description that hobbits held. Yes, there were there were a couple different job descriptions. So there was a mayor who acted like a mayor would in any town. The sheriffs, or were also known as the watch, uh, they were the only form of law enforcement in the Shire, and they were the closest thing to a form of defense that the Hobbit society possessed, and it was voluntary. Uh, there were a total of twelve sheriffs at a time, three for each farthing. Uh, and they were distinguished by the feather that they wore in their hats, and they carried walking sticks. Eating sticks. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was kind of funny, because my brain immediately went to Terry Pratchett and Watchmen on the Beat carrying their sticks. Yep. Truncheons. Yeah, they're truncheons. That's the word. But they were the only form of law enforcement. Um, and then the other kind of, like, official oversight in the Shire was the office of the Fane, which was of military origin, mm. and it descended strictly through the male line. Um, it had passed through the Took line for centuries. So Pippin became the 20th Tuken Thane, Thane in 1434, and there were 32 Thanes total. And that's kind of interesting because at one point when, uh, what was his name? Ismel, Ismelagus, Ismelodon, something. He was a Took. He was like the first Took to be the Thane. And then he changed the rules that it would own, it would be passed down. It could be her, um, hereditary for Tooks. That's so fucked this, up. Yeah, so he like basically changed it. Uh, yay. Damn, Tolkien loved a monarchy. I know, right? Nasty. So then Tolkien also writes, in other great families, the headship might of the Thane might pass through the daughter of the deceased to the head's eldest grandson. In such cases, the heir took the name of his mother's family while retaining the father's family name in second place. This was the case of Otho Sackville Baggins, who obtained headship of the Sacksville through his mother, Camellia. 
His ambition to achieve the rare distinction of being the head of two families was rather absurd, but explained his exasperation with Bilbo and his adoption of Frodo. Oh. Right, that's, and that's why Otho Saxville Baggins was so mad, was because he could no longer be the head of two families because Bilbo had passed it on to Frodo. And this moves us on into then a little bit about the Bagginses, the Brandybucks, and the Tooks. So Bilbo Baggins and Mary, Duck, Mary Brandybuck both had two mothers. Mary Duck's father's grandmother was Mirabella Took. So this means that Mary and Pippin were first cousins. Frodo's mother was a Brandybuck, and his father was a Baggins. But his father had lived in Buckland at Brandy Hall, where Frodo grew up. Um, and he, both his parents died in when their boat capsized. They went on a trip down the river Brandywine, and they're both capsized. And a lot of the Shire folk were like, well, it kind of serves him right, because mm-hmm. he's a Baggins who ran off with the Brandybucks and went in a river they hated rivers and they hated boats and they thought that the brandy bucks were super weird because they liked both of those things mm. and that can take us into a look at the rife tensions between the toques the brandy bucks and their silhouettes aesthetic choices as tumblr says i mean this is a, a post that i i sent to zoe a while ago that is just super fucking funny to read it's all by penny anna um that wonder of a genius of lord of the rings head cannons penny anna we love you penny anna please marry us and so this is what penny anna says pointless lord of the ring head cannon of the day Frodo and Mary both take after their mothers, meaning Frodo looks more like a brandy buck than a Baggins, and Mary looks more like a toque. This is a constant source of petty contention. Pippin, meanwhile, absolutely takes after his father and is the most tookish looking. Mary, call me a toque one more time. Gandalf, if it looks like a toque and it acts like a toque, it's a toque. Mary, I will end you. Gandalf is the only non-hobbit in the Fellowship who understands the minutia of Took versus Brandybuck versus Baggins rivalry, and he delights in it. Everyone else is baffled. Frodo. Look, it's perfectly simple. The Brandybucks don't like the Tooks because they play golf and think they're better than everyone because they occasionally go on adventures. The Tooks don't like the Brandybucks because they live on the wrong side of the river and like boats. And nobody likes the Bagginses because they're annoying. Aragorn, are you including yourself in that? Frodo. I said what I said. Frodo, now the Bagginses don't like the Brandy Bucks or the Tooks because they're highly disrespectable, but also richer than they are. And as far as a lot of the Bagginses are concerned, I'm a Brandy Buck because I grew up in Buckland and I have the Brandy Buck profile. Mary, which just means he's not pug ugly. Frodo, quite. Aragorn, this is all ridiculous. Keep going. Gandalf, hmm. Now I wouldn't say ugly, but every Baggins I've ever met has been perfectly round or perfectly square. There is no middle ground. Gimli, baffled. Frodo isn't round or square. Mary, that's because he has the brandy buck profile. Gimli, so is he a brandy buck? Mary, absolute not. Frodo, slander. I'm a Baggins. How dare you? Pippin, was your father a round Baggins or a square Baggins? Frodo, my father was the roundest Baggins who ever lived. A perfect sphere of a hobbit. And it is true that nobody liked the Brandy Bucks with the toque because they had more money because it was Mirabella Toque, Bilbo's mother, who built the biggest, most glorious hobbit hole in all of the Shire because she had the money to do so. It has a very loving description at the very beginning of the Hobbit, yeah? It's true. It's not a warm (laughs) hole. It's a comfortable hobbit hole. 
vivid so vivid i want to live in that right. hall i do oh, me too speaking of bilbo there were a couple little funny things in that entire like legal thing about the contract that i thought were absolutely hilarious sure so yeah sweet okay side note so in the contract they use the term burglar to describe bilbo uh the lawyer writes this is important because of the use of the defined term burglar contracts to do something illegal are ordinarily unenforceable but here what matters is not that the parties use the word burglar but rather what sort of meaning they assign to that defined term as we shall see the contract doesn't require bilbo to do anything illegal or at least not obviously illegal and so the contract will probably not fail for use of a questionable term I just thought that was hilarious that it was like, well, he's a burglar, but he's not a burglar, but he's a burglar. The description of what he does is not a burglar, but it's kind of like in the thing where it's like you put your first name and then in parentheses, it's like here and after referred to as burglar. Right, and if, you're like, well, then what are you? What are you? <laughs> are you a burglar? Another part that I thought was in regards to our linguistics and legal, linguistics crossed with legal. Um, Lawyer writes, the next part of the arbitration paragraph is a rarity for any American lawyer. And all pleas shall be pleaded, shrewd, etc., defended, answered, debated, and judged in the dwarvish tongue. Obviously, this is a significant disadvantage for Bilbo, as he evidently cannot read and presum presumably cannot speak dwarvish. Choice of language clauses like this one are much more common in international contracts than in contracts between parties in the United States. They are also much more common in contracts that contain arbitration agreements rather than form selection clauses, e.g. any disputes arising under this contract will be heard in the courts of capital city state X. Because in most countries, the courts only deal in one official language, making a choice of language clause redundant. But when the case will go to arbitration, the choice chosen arbitrator could potentially speak multiple languages. However, the most common reason for a choice of language clause is when the contract itself is translated into multiple languages for the benefit of the parties. In that case, it is common for the contract to specify that one version is the authoritative version. I love that because this actually came up from when I was living in Ireland. They uh, let us know. So Irish or Gaelic is a um, recognized national language there and you have to take it uh, all through high school if you go to an Irish school and you usually have to take a couple years of it in college unless you go to Trinity um, University but that's a whole different thing but you can also request that your entire trial be in Irish if you want to have it drawn out because that means they then have to translate every document into Irish they have to get translators they have to like do this whole rigmarole where if you're a citizen of Ireland and you want to have a trial in Irish you can demand that if you just want more time to like I don't know draw things out a little bit longer wow mm -hmm. especially when dwarvish is only spoken by dwarves and there's not that many of them around like many parts of the middle earth easily accessible and it's a secret language so they may or may not actually argue it in front of you this seems like a, a lot very of problems this is a shifty uh a shifty activity they're it's, dwarves of course they are so mean to say that um you don't need to buy into tolkien's shitty <laughs> ideas about dwarves um it's true it is interesting though that they have decided that their language is the the be-all end-all of the contract and then then yet 
don't teach their language to anybody outside of it. Oh, their sign language. Uh, oh, that sign language. I had such hopes for it. I know, but we don't know anything about it, really. The last thing that this, that I kind of found funny that this lawyer points out, he says, the one thing that leaps out at me about this contract is that it doesn't contain a choice of law clause. Such a clause allows the parties to specify what jurisdiction's law will govern the contract. This is particularly useful when multiple jurisdictions may potentially apply. The area of the law that deals with figuring out which court has jurisdiction and which law applies is known as conflict of laws. Conflict of laws is a complex subject. Typically, it is a standalone course in law school. So we won't go into too much detail here, but suffice to say that arguably both the law of the Shire and the law of the Dwarven Kingdom could conceivably apply to this contract. Some of the factors that a court might consider include the parties are a hobbit of the Shire and a group of dwarves. The contract was signed in the Shire. The contract conserves services to be performed in the Dwarven Kingdom. The most likely source of the breach of the contract occurs in the Dwarven Kingdom. <laughs> That's a lot, of, a lot of things to parse through if you had anything uh, breaches this contract. Yeah, good thing he followed through on that one. I know, right? But I, I am curious, like, if this were ever taken to court, I mean, granted, it would obviously be a dwarven court because dwarvish, so they would probably argue for the dwarven kingdom. But let's say it was a non-biased court. I wonder which law they would use if it's more powerful that it was signed in the Shire or if, it, if it's more powerful that he's from the Shire or if the fact that they spend most of their time in the dwarven kingdom, like which law would they go for? I don't know. I mean, I'm inclined to think that the dwarves would win that one for themselves pretty handily because there's the possibility of getting an unbiased, entirely dwarven jury is like none. Right, precisely. But let's say it were an unbiased jury, not just of dwarves. I mean, a non-biased jury doesn't exist. I've done jury duty and I absolutely loved it, actually. Anybody who's in the United States, please just do your jury duty service. It's really interesting. And they were Especially basically- do it on Christmas Eve. Well, yeah, I did have to convict someone on Christmas Eve and that didn't feel awesome, but- <laughs> The process was great. I can separate myself that much. And that was kind of a thing that they talked with us about. They were saying it is not the jury's job in this particular case to be entirely unbiased. It's to bring your own experience here and your own opinion and see what plays out and make a reasonable judgment based on that. They said, try to put aside any stuff that you have in your background, but we are also picking people for this jury based on your background. Cause you go out there and you have one of the most thorough interviews I have ever had um, to screen you for jury service. That's cool. It's really cool. I'm a pretty unbiased person. So I was picked uh, for a, a little jury there. I'm glad I didn't get on a grand jury. That would have been a lot, but mm -mm. yeah, we did a, a two day case and over Christmas. <laughs> uh but yeah, it's interesting to think about that and the the law systems and legalities of this. And I feel like British courts just look especially weird to me because you have to wear a wig if you're a judge. Like you just have to have one of those little curly wigs, whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are white or not, you are going to have a powdered wig on you. It's very strange to see in these courtroom dramas. And I mean, I haven't seen a lot of British courtroom dramas because that's not really my bag, but Prima Ackerman was in one and she was really good on Doctor Who. And I just saw a clip of her and I was like, what the fuck is going on? I just always think they look kind of like poodles. It is poodly. It is very poodly. 
and I just can't take any of it seriously, even though I know that they're judges. I wonder if dwarves have to do that. They have to wear a little wig. <laughs> oh my goodness, they have to like braid their beard and then wear a wig and then... And the hobbits, if the hobbits have to appear in court, they have to wear a fake beard to like appear as dwarves. I don't know. This is getting really weird, but I'm wondering if there's like a dress code for this sort of thing. Or like the dress code would be different in different parts. Like, I don't, I doubt the Shire even has a court of law. Like the dwarves definitely do. They're uptight enough for that. But I did bet the Shire is just like, let's go to a pub and drink a pint and it's all gonna be fine have some weed they're like party quakers where it's like we'll come to a decision eventually we just gotta talk it out till everyone's pretty cool with it and now that we're all drunk and maybe a little stone we're gonna clap each other on the back and go our separate ways and we'll remember this in the morning i love that thinking of the hobbits as the free love people you know (laughs) Right. I mean, the hobbits are simultaneously feudal England and also like the seventies. Quakers. And Quakers, yes. Quakers. (laughs) I just like to bring up the Quakers because my mom's one. I always forget that. I know it's not a very well uh, known or publicized religion. No, it's not. Oh God, who's the guy who did Watergate? Nixon. Yeah, Nixon was Quaker. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't until, yeah, I looked up Quakers and it was like, notable Quakers, Nixon. And I was like, oh, fuck. Weird as hell. So the last little random legal tidbit that I found was from thelegalgeeks.com, where they did a Hobbit's overview of property rights and went into, like, with full legal text support of who might actually own the ring. Oh, so the ring is, ownership is in dispute. I love it. Yeah. So. I, I cut, I took some pieces out of it that put the story of the article. It was a long article, but mm, generally speaking, and this will vary state to state, someone who finds mislaid property has no right to it. A finder is entitled to possession of lost property against everyone except the true owner, and a finder is entitled to keep abandoned property. This was from a 1985 case in Chicago. That was finders, not keepers. Finders, not keepers. Sauron was unquestioningly the original owner of the One Ring as its creator. This gave him the right to possess... Well, wait, Kelembrimbor helped make it, right? No, not that one. No, the, okay. one ri- the One Ring, Sauron was the only one who created it. He went off on his own uh, and made it in secret. And then when he put it on, the elves realized, oh, hey, we've been betrayed. Okay. But Kelembrimbor made the Three Rings. So Kelembrimbor would be the true owner of the Three Elven Rings that Sauron would, legally speaking have no rights to okay in terms of it would be joint property for the other 16 because they made them together okay but the one ring was sauron's gotcha however during the final battle with the elves and with elves and men isildur cuts off sauron's finger thus destroying sauron's physical form isildur became the rightful owner of the one ring after sauron's defeat as a spoils of war which is property taken from the enemy in wartime operations see black's law dictionary Okay. I was going to say, I was like, just murdering someone and taking their stuff does not make you the owner. But in war, I guess. Spoils of war. Yeah, Yeah. they have different law for spoils of war. That's fucked up, but yes. Right. Uh, Yeah, it's legal murder, but whatever. Uh, The One Ring is lost for over 2,500 years after Isildur's death. Given that amount of time and no rightful heirs looking for the One Ring, Deagle became the owner of the One Ring once he found it on his ill fated fishing trip as a treasure trope or abandoned property. I was going to say abandoned property at that point, yeah. Yeah. Smeagol's murder of Deagle did not make Smeagol the owner of the One Ring. 
one cannot benefit lawfully from committing a crime. Yes. While Smeagol was in possession of the One Ring for 500 years, he was never the lawful owner due to the murder. Mm. Even if one can argue that there was an undue influence over Smeagol from the evilness of the One Ring, Smeagol still killed Deagle to get the ring. While the control of the ring might not make Smeagol guilty of murder based on an insanity defense similar to the Twinkies defense, it does not make him innocent of killing Deagle. Yes. A court would be hard-pressed to somehow have Smeagol inherit the ring from Deagle based on the influence of the One Ring to drive Smeagol to kill, even if it was mutual combat from both hobbits being corrupted by the One Ring. Which, that was really fast corruption, but okay. Yeah, the ring worked fast. It had like two uh, 2,500 years to build up a charge of- And then boom! <laughs> and, it, and it was it in water. Blew its load on that, yeah. <laughs> Electri- electrical overcharge there. Uh, things get tricky with Bilbo acquiring the ring. Technically, the one ring was no longer in Gollum's possession as it had slid off Gollum's finger. This raises issues of whether the ring was lost or abandoned. The answer may turn on how much time had passed since the ring had fallen off of Gollum's finger or whether it, on whether it was lost or abandoned, but we don't know that. Presumably it wasn't a super long time because, I mean, like he didn't start aging weird or anything. No, and he, you know, he went to try and find it. He was like, oh, wait, where'd I put it? Let me go make sure it's safe. And then he had, it wasn't there where he had usually hit it. So it probably wasn't a long time. No, not like, like you know, 2,500 years. Absolutely not. Yeah. So, arguably, Bilbo found lost or abandoned property that was never lawfully Gollum's. However, if the ring was not considered abandoned, Bilbo's game of riddles with Gollum would show a lawful transference of ownership uh, if Gollum had perfected title somehow, since Gollum did have the ring for 500 years without being challenged. So, because he wasn't challenged, it could technically be Gollum's... Perfected title? uh, Perfected title... Basically, because it hadn't been challenged, it basically had transferred the title of ownership to him. Oh, okay. Because no one had come to claim it, even if he, you know, it wasn't technically his. Because he of had the murdered. murder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no one, you know, challenged him on that, so. Fair. Uh, however, he says, this theory is problematic because it would require, one, murder being cured for ownership. Doesn't really work that way. And two, Bilbo found the ring before encountering Gollum while navigating his way through a pitch black tunnel. One could argue the ring appeared abandoned to Bilbo, opposed to simply misplaced. However, if Bilbo was on notice the ring belonged to Gollum, Bilbo could have problems with unlawfully taking the ring. With that said, since Gollum planned to kill and eat Bilbo, Bilbo arguably took the ring out of self-defense. Oh, yep, 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 yep. It is Mm -hmm. then a thing he used to save himself from getting eaten. Because he did put it on and he was invisible, so Gollum did not see him, even though he didn't know it made him invisible because he was in a pitch dark tunnel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so would self-defense work if he didn't actually know that it could be used for self-defense? I don't know. Hmm. Bilbo made a direct gift of the ring to Frodo. As such, the ring properly belonged to Frodo as a gift and in his possession for 17 years. However, after Gandalf's return and the ring is placed in fire, the text on the ring was arguably a 3,000-year-old mark of appropriation by Sauron. A mark of appropriation is a way of showing ownership over an item with an identifying marking. Arguably, Sauron had a mark of appropriation on the ring, showing he was the owner. Additionally, if Middle-earth and the Shire specifically had laws like California that prohibit the appropriation of lost property when there are clues to the proper order, uh, California Penal Code 485, Frodo would have to make reasonable efforts to notify Sauron that he, Frodo, had the ring. Oh my god, this is amazing. 
However, the mark of appropriation arguably would not be a valid claim of ownership due to the fact that 3,000 years had passed and that Sauron lost the wrong one ring when he was defeated by Isildur. Yeah, so you're not technically the same body anymore. Are you still the same person? Yes, you are, but like you can't say that you own all this stuff still. Right. Things change. Interesting. And he never tried to claim it for 3,000 years, so therefore you have given up ownership. I love this because I was, uh, I keep a plague journal right now and I have written in the front's piece, if lost, return to Hannah. And then I have my email in there. And that's technically the same thing as this long, beautiful poem, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, find one them. ring to bring them all and in the darkness, bind them, if lost, return to Sauron. <laughs> <laughs> so then you can make the assumption legal geek says that frodo was the proper owner great until Gollum once again steals it by biting off frodo's finger without a fingered sacrifices (laughs) and then i love that legal geeks right this criminal possession is short-lived as the ring and Gollum fall into lava (laughs) love it when a lawyer tells you what happens in a fantasy series right lava negates all law (laughs) because it's then destroyed so property no longer exists yes a balrog cannot be a lawyer because he is made of lava and cannot (laughs) dispute property law (laughs) i think i should start putting that into the front of my journals (laughs) if if found if lost to to turn to (laughs) zoe Yeah. One ring to rule them all, one ring to hide them, one ring to bring them all in the darkness by them. In the land of Mordor where the shadows of lies. If that became just like a shorthand way for nerds to be like, this is mine, give it back to me. <laughs> right, this is my mark of appropriation. You better understand what it means, bitches. One journal to rule them all. <laughs> <laughs> Although, side note, but in relation to this little poem, a mark of appropriation, there was a meme, I think I might have sent it to you, of the washing of hands and how saying that entire thing is about 20 seconds. So every time you wash your hands during pandemic season, just say it to yourself. Three rings for the elven kings, seven for the dark <laughs> lords in their halls of stone, nine for the mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord in his dark throne. Oh my God. In the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. I do not know that poem, and I also hope pandemic season is no longer, like, a thing. <laughs> that's the, so that's the first bit to the following one ring to bring them all in and the dark smile them. It's actually a two, it ends a poem, but we mostly just re- recite. On There's one fucking one. ring they fit this? No, they only got okay. the second one on the ring, but then the first one was, like, the part of the entire poem. There was, it was a longer poem than what just was on the ring. Oh, yep. interesting. Sauron was a poet. Um, sure. I don't know. That might have been the Elvish in him, you know. Sure, that makes sense. Well, thank you for all of this research, Zoe. I'm glad we really dug into all these ownership laws for both hobbits and their inheritance and their profiles, and then also about the ring and who owns that little piece of property. I was just really glad that I found that. I was like, this is gold. This is, and then like every like every few paragraphs was like, see, Black's Law Dictionary. And I was like, great, I need to go look at this dictionary. <laughs> that will be so boring, so let me tell you. I know, I don't actually want to, but I also just like the name because it kind of sounds like a pirate, like a it's pirate's dictionary of law. Yeah. I know, right? It's pretty neat. 
Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Finding the Glitter in the Golds. We are available on all major podcasting apps. You can look us up there. If you do, it would be great if you could like us, rate us, write us a review, subscribe so that you can keep getting updates whenever we post every week. You can also email us. We would love to hear from you if you have any suggestions or if you want to continue this conversation. We are uh, glitterinthegold at gmail.com. Um, yeah, thank you all so much for joining us. See y'all on the Shire side. <laughs> <laughs>